0: This is Be More Human. My name is Graham Brown. Now, these subjects range in conversational coverage from artificial intelligence to personal storytelling to corporate storytelling to webinars. It's all stories. And probably the most interesting aspect of story is how that affects our lives. In one of the interesting observations that I've found in being, an experimenter or in truth to use Gandhi's terms is that your life our lives are stories and if you want a better life you just simply tell a better story think about it a lot of people say of themselves that they are x and that becomes their story and in many ways that could be your job title So, you know, that could be, I'm the vice president of marketing. That now is your story. Think about it. I am the vice president of marketing. That is you. You have now adopted that title as your identity. That now becomes your story. And it may be something that you are conscious of, but potentially unaware of the implications of what that means. And a good example of that is if you ever hear somebody who may say to you, I'm a struggling artist. Now, it's almost glorified or glamorized in popular culture that an artist must struggle. And, you know, you just have to watch operas like La Boheme, which are the stories of struggling and tortured artists and creatives who, as true to most operas, die But that doesn't have to be the case. And one of the cases, one of the reasons why that the story is a powerful yet innocuous narrative by which we interface with the world is that we believe and we view the world through the stories that we tell about it. So if you're a struggling artist, you will always struggle because that is what you do. So, if you ask yourself, why is this so difficult? Why am I not getting results? Well, you're not getting results because you have told the story about yourself, which is that you are a struggling artist, and therefore this is the encoded expectations and behaviors that go with that narrative. And this is what I call the short-form story. And if you want an example of a short form story, simply um, think about how people uh, adopt job titles or roles within organizations. At the most tangible level, you go to Disney World and it's interesting. It, like In Disney World, if you go to the teacups and you ask somebody to show you to, uh, I don't know, the Epcot Center or, you know, whatever it may be, the Animal Kingdom, Magic Kingdom, I can't remember what it's called. But if you want one of the Disney staff to show you, something magical happens. And what they will do is they will smile and they won't just point you in the direction. They will walk you there. They will guide you. And the reason why that happens is not because of a manual. It's not because of a strategy. It's because of a story. You see, in Disney World, employees aren't employees, they are cast members. And cast members, as you would expect, perform. You're always on stage, and in Disney, they have backstage and front stage, as you would on theatre or in the movies. That simple word, phrase, that short-form story changes everything. I am a cast member. Therefore, the behaviors encoded and the outcomes, the expectations associated with that story are somehow embedded in my brain at the subconscious level without me realizing it. In the same way, you could adopt the moniker of vice president of marketing or struggling artist and that will somehow in the same way, embed itself in your psyche and influence you in terms of expectations and encoded behavior. Take, for example, Starbucks and McDonald's. On the one hand, you have two very similar fast food retail brands, very profitable, very successful. But who wants to work at McDonald's? McDonald's in the social media meme is the mcjob it's the lowest of the low and if you look at the history of mcdonald's it's littered with fights between mcdonald's and unions and you go on a youtube and type in mcdonald's it's not long before you see physical fights between customers and employees that doesn't happen so much at starbucks and yet Both Starbucks and McDonald's sell pretty damn unhealthy food. It's just that one has a bad name. McDonald's sells burgers. And Starbucks sells high-calorie, carbohydrate-rich food. So what does it mean? It means that somehow one has told a different story to the other. Like Disney... They're very conscious about who they recruit and also the words they use to talk about their people. In Starbucks, you have baristas. Now, baristas obviously is of Italian origin and it harks back to the era of the post-war when the southern Italians would move to the north, to Milan, to find work. And they would be the first ones who then... Uh, they would be the first ones to take up this barista role. And for them, the barista role wasn't a job. Firstly, it was art. It was the love of coffee. But most importantly, it was about community. Because the southern Italians who were displaced by poverty and war, who moved to the north to find better lives, were the ones who needed community more than anything. And for them, the cafe, the espresso, the stand-up community that was created around that interaction was what they were seeking. And Starbucks consciously, consciously calls these people baristas. They're not employees. By contrast, McDonald's and its employees even employees they're called crew baristas crew baristas love community connection crew crew scrub decks on boats and you may think that too much you may think that this is not relevant you may think that yeah, but that doesn't affect me. But it does. And that's the point. The most powerful stories are the ones that don't look like stories. And a story could be as simple as a word. And that story told is a story that gets told by us to other people. And importantly, to ourselves in our own head every single day. That is the power of story. It influences us and it helps us and hinders us similarly in the way that we see the world, interpret events, interpret our own behaviors, and also measure our realities and outcomes according to what our expectations are. If you are crew, it's okay that you treat your customers badly. And that Maxim of the customer is always right sounds, in business school terms, to be a good idea. But what it really implies is that the employee is always wrong. Because if a customer spills his coke on the floor, even though he was playing around with it, then it's the employee's fault. And that's the point. That disempowers employees because they are simply deck scrubbers. And it's not just about how those employees see themselves. It's about how their managers see them and how the CXOs see those managers and how shareholders see them. The most effective stories are the ones that don't look like stories. And You think about how many different stakeholders there are, how many different interactions take place in all of the scenarios that we've just been listening to. Thousands, millions. And therefore, the only thing that survives this constant evolution, this constant... Back and forth. This constant interaction is the lowest common denominator of interaction. And that is a story. And that's why if you look, for example, in my data storytelling book, when I talk about the most effective data stories ever told are also the most simplest. Argument in case, flattening the curve. Flattening the curve has been seen by hundreds of millions of people. And it was the lowest common denominator of a story. It was simple. And its simplicity meant that it didn't open itself to hundreds of millions of individual interpretations. It was a unit, and that unit could be traded and shared between hundreds of millions of people. And every time that somebody told the story to the other person, it didn't mutate and become something new, because it was simple. Flattening the curve wasn't a 20-page long list of bullet points. Flattening the curve was a simple data story a visual with simply two lines and those are the most powerful stories if you write a customer training manual you might have to write 100 pages 200 pages with a list of do's and don'ts and what you should do and how you should behave but at the end of the day it's the words the stories that you tell about those people that they will always gravitate back to. Crew, barista, cast. And in Disney World, if you ask Cinderella to take a a photo on the iPhone with you, she will say, what is an iPhone? And you will also, you won't see you know, somebody dressed as a, a cowboy from... The Wild West walking through Tomorrowland. Everybody stays in character because the implicit assumption and expectation of that short form story of cast is powerful. I understand what it means to be on stage. And that's why, as an example, when we work with clients on webinars, we talk about webinars not as events but shows. The distinction is key because they are definitions which in themselves are short form stories. Just like you could label the same person with different stories and get different results. Cast, employee, barista, crew. They're all the same. But they have completely different expectations and results. In the same way, a webinar could be an event, a webinar could be a show. An event is one of those conferences that you go to where you rock up at nine o'clock, get your coffee, stand around eating crappy biscuits and cookies, waiting for the event to start, and you roll into the the hotel banqueting room where they have the big round tables laid out with the white chairs and you're looking for a place to sit and everybody sits at the back events are not about experience events are about captive audiences because once you're there you don't leave sometimes people fly there but not a show like in a world of netflix you understand that attention is your biggest cost So if you call it a show where you have to perform, where you're there to serve the audience, it creates a very different expectation and coded behavior than an event. People at an event mill around in the coffee room. Employees at the event mill around, look busy, stare at their phones, bored, whilst they sit at the registration table. At a show, however, Everybody is performing. So that is the power of a short form story. And perhaps the most powerful story is the one that you tell yourself every day about who you are and what you do. Some years ago, my family, we, me and my wife, sold everything and traveled the world for four years. We lived on tropical islands. We lived in the Canary Islands. We lived on Fiji. We spent time in New Zealand. We spent time on the West Coast of the US and California, Hawaii, Florida, Cyprus, Okinawa, Thailand, and now Singapore. And the reason is, is that it's negotiable. Reality is really negotiable. If you were to tell a story about yourself, which was where your identity was tied to a state or a being, then it becomes difficult for you to imagine what the world could be without that. So, if you're vice president of marketing and you lose your job, you're now nothing. However, if you're a marketer and you lose your job, you're still a marketer. And that's, What I found is when you peel back the short form stories which haven't been written by us, but importantly, written for us, you can actually discover your own voice. As Harley Davidson himself wrote, when writing the story of your life, just make sure nobody else is holding the pen. And how true that is. Success is a story. And it's a story that you can write yourself. How do you define success? Do you define success by your job title? The car? The size of your office? The size of your office chair? What? How do you define it? Because if you adopt short form stories which aren't your own, then your definition of success is also not your own. That's why your job title isn't you. And you can change it. You can play with it. I called myself a storyteller. Why? Why not? That's what I do. I'm a storyteller and that is my world. Because if I call myself a storyteller, then it doesn't matter where or when I am or where I am in the world. I can still tell stories and still add value to people in my network. And think about that. That's a what-if question. I'm a storyteller, what if I was telling stories in Okinawa out in the East China Sea? Why not? What if? But what if is a dangerous question to ask? Because once you start asking the what if questions, the layers start peeling back. The short form stories that you have throughout your whole life cobbled together like some kind of magpie collection of stories inherited from the TV images that you've seen, from the newspaper articles that you've absorbed, and from the conversations of aunts and uncles and co-workers and families and everybody who had expectations of who you are and what you should do in your life. All of those start becoming negotiable. And then you start asking, what if? And then the world falls apart beautifully.